Becker's Hospital Review is committed to delivering our audience safe access to vital educational opportunities. With this in mind, our 11th annual meeting will be in virtual format for the first time. Whether in the home or workplace, attendees will have access to sessions where industry leaders will be discussing the most pressing issues in healthcare, including the rise of virtual care, addressing clinician burnout, and delivering on-price transparency. To learn more, click on the conference tab at beckershospitalreview.com. This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Peter Chang, Vice President of Care Transitions at Tampa General Hospital. Dr. Chang, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Laura. Now, before we begin our questions, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. So uh, I'm about almost 10 years out of uh, residency training in internal medicine. I was a practicing hospitalist for a couple of years with the academic service at the University of South Florida and Tampa General. And I sort of tripped and fell into the chief medical informatics officer position at TGH. And I still did some clinical uh, around 25% of my time. Um, I spent about four years as the CMIO, really looking at the digital strategy and any technology that, uh, you know, influenced the patient or a, a healthcare provider or a team member, uh, I kind of had the purview of overseeing, which was a really awesome experience. Uh, what ended up happening to me is I kept getting drugged back into operations, whether it be from a length of stay perspective or just the workflows that were happening inside of the hospital. And I really saw the need for uh, what essentially is a hospital command center. So I made the pitch to our CEO at the time, and he decided that it's something we wanted to proceed with. And I transitioned out of IT uh, into operations as the VP of care transitions, uh, primarily tasked with operationalizing our clinical command center here at TGH. Oh, fantastic. So it sounds like you've had quite a career pathway to your current role, and I'm excited to learn more about it. Well, first, I wanted to start, you know, a little bit with how things have been going in the, the past year and how you're seeing things today with COVID-19. How really has the pandemic changed your strategy and view around virtual care and technology? Uh, very interesting question. So I'll kind of start off by maybe giving a little bit of a background on the command center. Um, we've been at it for about two and a half years, um, running a very significant return on investment so far, um, really centered around hospital flow. Um, in regards to, to COVID, we were kind of tasked with the strategy of bringing up units that were negative pressure for COVID care patients and decommissioning them when the numbers were fluctuating. Um, but what we really saw as the primary goal was really around length of stay. And so what ended up happening was we looked at COVID capacity and said, you know, what's the best way to be able to manage these patients in the lowest length of stay possible that was still safe for patients? And so from a virtual care perspective, we stood up what we call the transitional care team where we actually hired uh, medical assistants and RNs that would monitor patients at home 24-7 from uh, SpO2 or oxygen saturation perspective at home while a patient was on home oxygen. And what it allowed us to do is patients that were healing but just taking a while to, to really get off of oxygen post-COVID infection, um, it allowed us to discharge them from the hospital earlier and use virtual care technology to monitor at home and really reduce our inpatient COVID length of stay 
and at the same time prevent patients from being readmitted. As we got more accustomed to this strategy, we actually looked towards patients, let's say, with you know not a bunch of comorbidities in the ED setting that were presenting with maybe some shortness of breath, needed some oxygen, um, setting them well up with home monitoring and actually discharging them from the ED and then coordinating their care with our transitional care team where um, currently we're just using phone calls uh, to reach out for patients. Uh, as the time went by and we became more facile with the monoclonal antibody infusion, uh, we know uh, those drugs and treatments actually result in decreased hospitalization. So that was yet another strategy that we used virtual care to reach out to either ED patients or patients that met criteria that were recently discharged to be able to get into that clinic and get the infusion and hopefully avoid, uh, you know, serious deterioration needing, you know, again, another acute care hospitalization. Um, that's kind of one side of the coin. On, on the opposite side, from a virtual care perspective in our ambulatory setting, it really taught us what we could do from a, from a telehealth perspective in a short period of time. So uh, things that we've been playing around with and had ideas about for years prior to the pandemic, we were sort of forced to do. Um, you know, they, they say, Plato said that necessity is the mother of all invention. And it really forced us to become very innovative in a short period of time to stand up virtualizing our entire transplant clinic, for instance, and of course our ambulatory primary care clinic, um, and really kind of highlights what I call the three big buckets of virtual care, which is the platform. So what, you know, whether it's phone call or whether it's uh, you know Microsoft Teams or Zoom, what is the platform that you're using that integrates into your EHR? What are the device challenges on the patient and provider side? And the third bucket is who's monitoring, right? whether it's remote patient monitoring or the physician that's conducting a telehealth visit. Those are kind of the three areas, no matter if you're talking about remote patient monitoring or at-home visits uh, via telehealth, those are kind of the three big areas. Got it. That makes sense. And it's really helpful to think about in terms of how your strategy has evolved, especially with COVID-19 and where you see the most need headed. Now, my next question has to do with enterprise imaging and radiology. How do you see enterprise imaging and radiology evolving in the future? Well, you know, in my current role, unfortunately, I don't get to do as much strategy and planning around enterprise imaging. But in my former role at CMIO, um, which, you know, some of the similar problems that, that I had, you know, just recently in the CMIO role are still present today, which is, again, bifurcating things into two areas. When you look at enterprise imaging, and radiology, there's there's two sections of it. As a hospitalist, I definitely want to interact with the clinical side, um, and I'm I'm less concerned with the the PACS side, um, and and really looking from the clinical side, I want my images to be easily accept accessible across platform across what everyone calls the ologies. So whether that's my endoscopy for pulmonology and gastroenterology that I need to see the images to present to a patient, match that up with a CT scan of the abdomen or the lungs in, in either case. And then uh, potentially if I have a biopsy, being able to actually review my pathology slide. So, you know, when we talk about enterprise imaging, it really goes far beyond just our common concepts of looking at things from a radiology bucket and really goes to create sort of a, a longitudinal medical record that's easily accessible for clinicians and now for patients uh, in a way that, you know, can cross instances. So can 
my health system interact with another health system that I'm partnered with or one in an area so I can decrease duplicating, you know, repeat scans and those sorts of things. Um, so, you know, when we talk about the difference between a clinical system and a PAC system, um, you know, really what it needs to be is one system that's transparent to the radiologist as a PAC system and transparent to the bedside clinician that needs to review the images just as a quick, easy, lightweight system. This is where you really start to look at the strategies around vendor neutral archives versus um, uh, universal viewers. Um, and I'm a big fan of the universal viewer way of looking at things because what you can do is you can sort of connect it and hook it into all your different buckets of imaging information, um, whether it be DICOM or non-DICOM, and really present that clinical imaging system to your practitioners in a way that's very seamless, can integrate with a mobile device. There's so many different facets of trying to figure out how we you know, integrate it into an EHR. So I'm not launching a separate system, but it's inside of a window inside of your, your native EMR. Those sorts of things are really you know, something that I'm extremely passionate about making the, the, the process seamless for the people that are having to take care of patients. I don't have to go out to three different systems to view three different sets of images from the different ologies, as we call them. Got it. That makes sense. And it's so interesting to think about how you can uh, make that system more efficient and effective, not only for the clinicians, but for patients as well. Exactly. I think that that's really the challenge now as we start to look at that longitudinal medical record piece. What, what's really interesting is if you make all the links and the connection, the patient is the one that connects all of those different links. Um, and creating that imaging uh, longitudinal medical record, as I call it, um, to be able to house on one device, this is where that cross-platform interoperability really comes into play to be able to provide that seamless vision to patients in regards to their imaging and not having to say, well, you know, my CAT scan is over here, but my MRI is over here. And so you end up with patients in today's age, as, as, as advanced as we are, running around shuttling discs back and forth between their consulting providers just so that imaging can be presented to them. And so, you know, I really do feel the future is really giving and empowering patients with the ability to, to house and hold their imaging and then allow it to be shared with different providers, uh, of course, uh, with consent. Now, what are you most excited about right now and what makes you most nervous? Um, let's start off with what I'm most nervous about. Um, I'm really nervous for how the transition from uh, a fee-for-service payment model uh, moves to one of risk or capitation. Um, you know, when we talk about all the strategies that we alluded to in the earlier conversation around remote patient monitoring and telehealth, you know, we know that that is the most lightweight but yet highly effective with high quality and outcomes um, to, to be able to provide care outside of the normal settings that we consider clinic, home, hospital, um, and really kind of linking all of those pieces together by virtual care and technology. So, you know, as we start to do this, that requires significant investment. And that transition of trying to prove the use case to get an organization to invest in that technology and the people and the platforms, while at the same time sort of living in a fee-for-service world, and then knowing that risk and capitation is coming, 
and trying to figure out how, you know, we have one foot in each boat without us kind of, you know, spreading ourselves too thin. Um, that's really the challenge and what I fear most, because you do see that coming with bundle payments, with accountable care organizations, with at-risk uh, contracts with commercial payers. Um, and then at the same time, we're still trying to live in this fee-for-service volume world, um, which is an interesting, you know, juxtaposition in things. Um, so, you know, I, I think especially in the Southeast the United States, I know there are other markets in the Northeast and out West that are a lot more advanced and way farther down the road in that risk and capitation model. But for me right now, that's what makes me kind of nervous is how do I prove that use case for a strong virtual care program while still knowing that there's no strong reimbursement for it right now. COVID definitely changed our perspective on that, but I think there's a lot of work still to be done in that area. The thing I'm most excited about um, in, in, the, in the future for at least the, the topics that we're talking about is how we could use predictive analytics and artificial intelligence to help inform decision-making for healthcare providers and patients. Um, if you were to look at any other aspect of our lives, whether it's how we order something online and have it delivered to our house the same day, um, just think about all the logistics that goes behind that and how easy it is for a consumer to do something like that today. But then you look at the difficulty of how hard it is for someone to make a doctor's appointment and get lab work and get results to follow up and the productivity loss from you know, missing work just to do those activities, um, it needs to be more seamless in a way. So how could we really use you know, process automation and artificial intelligence to really have the information come find us versus in healthcare, especially as it relates to EHRs, us having to know where to look to go find the information. So by no means am I suggesting that AI or predictive analytics make diagnosis, diagnoses for, you know, physicians or APPs or nurses, but really it's about trying to have AI know the algorithms behind what we need to look at when we see diagnosis X and being able to serve up and present that information in a way that, that then a clinician can make a clinical decision and render either an, another test or new treatment. Uh, uh, to make a diagnosis. That's a great point, especially uh, as you concluded, there was some of the um, artificial intelligence being able to, you know, be an assistant to the clinicians and help them in making their decisions. And then looking through some of the things you mentioned about, um, you know, having the the one foot in, you know, risk-based care and in the capitation um, while also being in the fee-for-service world definitely makes it a challenging uh, time right now. Finally, before we end the, our discussion today, I wanted to ask you about um, leadership. What are your top three pieces of advice for aspiring clinical leaders today? Well, I think the first one is probably my, my, my most important one. If you took anything away from uh, today's talk, it's really around that, that, that my belief that the clinical leaders are the future of healthcare. You, you're strong clinicians, and you should be able to use that knowledge and marry it with performance improvement, and project management, those are the skills that we don't really get developed well uh, during our clinical training. So using those things, you sort of become a unicorn in a way in healthcare and really are the future. Um, so I, I'm, I'm very bullish on the clinician's role, um, and that's any clinician, from a radiology technician all the way to a physician to an advanced practice provider and everything in between, nurses included. 
um, to, to really use your clinical skills and go out and seek that training um, uh, to, to get those uh, skill sets that we don't get taught because they're, they're really needed in the healthcare space. Uh, the second thing is create your own strategy. Um, you know, your strategy is, is looking for problems in your area that you're passionate about and finding solutions that align with your organization's strategy. I think if you look at things like that, that's kind of what I did. I was in IT. I saw length of stay opportunities on the operational side. I went from a technology perspective to look at how we could implement new things to improve length of stay, and it worked really well with our command center. Uh, the last thing is exactly on that last point that to me innovation is not an action is not an, an idea it's an action right so there are a ton of innovative ideas out there just go and look and you'll find a million of them but actually taking that innovative idea and being able to implement it and and create an actionable outcome from trying to solve the problem that you identified to me that's really where innovation takes place Fantastic. I love all three of those things that you mentioned, your pieces of advice, you know, really saying that clinical leaders are the future of healthcare, and then they need to be able to create their own strategies and find solutions to the issues, as well as thinking about innovation as an action and opportunity to implement um, some of those ideas they have. Dr. Chang, thank you so much for being here today. This has been a really fantastic discussion, and I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Awesome, Laura. Again, thanks for having me.